Hello, this is Angela Schaefers, the host of Your Story Matters radio show. Today we have Brett Wilson on air and he will be sharing some of his amazing journey and story to help encourage and inspire many. He is a master's level counselor and he also is founder of walkingmiracles.org. In addition to that, he is a certified cancer patient navigator. Welcome to the show, Brett. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to have you here. I've looked at your blog and your website, and I'm very interested, of course, um, having faced cancer myself in all that you are doing and what you're doing as far as helping other people to deal with their diagnosis. And I really am looking forward to you sharing about that and how you came about getting to this point. But before we go there, I would love for you to share with our listeners just a little bit of your background and history. Okay. Well, um, I technically right now I'm 38 years old. I was diagnosed in 1974 with ALL, which is acute lymphocytic leukemia, which is the childhood version of leukemia. Um, I had five and a half years of chemotherapy and radiation uh, being treated for that particular illness. Um, after those five and a half years, I was in remission for a year and a half. Uh, ended up getting non-Hodgkin's lymphoma a year and a half later. I had uh, the size of a walnut in the side of my neck, and so they did radiation and chemo for another three and a half years. So all in all, I had eight and a half years of chemo and radiation, and I finished treatment when I was 12. Wow. Ended up going to Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia, and got my master's degree in community agency counseling. At the time, I was looking to find a way to work as a psychosocial uh, counselor to help cancer patients and their families, knowing uh, where I live in West Virginia, there were very few um, counseling services for cancer patients, and they didn't have one in the hospital that I was treated at. Mm -hmm. And so my mother and dad uh, had to search our community to find a resource that I felt should have been there. Uh, I didn't feel that they should have had to have gone and tried to do that themselves, but you know, that's kind of how things are. I ended up getting my master's uh, as well from community in community agency counseling from Marshall's graduate school. Uh, after I had done my internship as an undergrad at Duke University, I'd worked with their cancer patient support program. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how that worked, how psychosocial oncology was going. And at the time, it was just something that they were coming up with. Mm-hmm. And the person that had actually pioneered that at that time was Jimmy Holland. And so on a whim uh, from Charleston, I sent out some emails looking for a place that I could do an internship. Uh, unfortunately, mine was unpaid. And I'd gotten some offers from Sloan Kettering and Duke. Hindsight says you don't go to New York because it's too cold. So I didn't. And I ended up at Duke, which is probably something I shouldn't have done. And um, I ended up going there and had had done my internship for about six months and was found out about by the pediatric chief at the time uh, in the children's unit who was starting a long-term survivors program for children. Mm-hmm. And because of my background and my history, it was kind of uncommon for somebody like me to go through what I went through and be as successful if I had been. And so I was hired as a counselor for about a year. It was a grant-funded program, and I learned how those worked. And um, after about a year working there, the funds ran out, and I had to go search uh, for other opportunities. I left Durham, North Carolina, uh, at Duke and ended up in Charlotte 
had worked about a year with American Cancer Society. I liked the programs that ACS had had because that was the only thing that was available to my mother and I outside of Candlelighters, which I think is based out of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, for information. However, I just wasn't really impressed with the non-direct services that they provided to patients and families. Mm-hmm. I ended up leaving that, ended up going into retail for quite a while, and then God started talking to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And about 2006, I decided that it was time for me to put what I had had as my purpose all along to use, and I started Walking Miracles. Let me stop you there for a minute before you go on and share about Walking Miracles. Sure. Um, because I think it's important to help people to understand some of the emotions and the things that go along hand in hand with facing cancer. And of course, it's very different for a child facing cancer compared to an adult facing cancer. Do mm-hmm. you recall any of the emotions or feelings you had when you were dealing with that during that time of your life? Yeah, I actually do. And that's one of those things that I'm really working toward trying to let go. I still haven't gotten there yet, but because of the age that I had had all this stuff, as we know in society, children can be very um, cool and they don't understand and there's not a lot of education. Mm-hmm. I had faced a lot of ridicule and at the time I was overweight. I'd lost my hair three or four times. I was just miserable and I didn't have home a lot of friends that I could count on and that kind of thing. So it was very difficult growing up because I really didn't have a support system. Mm-hmm. I had my family, but I didn't have any friends. Mm-hmm. And so most of the people that I did know were older because I have an older brother who was a, a great support to me during that time frame. But I, I was friends with most of his people because that's who I ended up hanging out with. Mm-hmm. So I never really had a chance to develop a relationships of my own peers, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. That does. And it really does. And and also, too, with the fact of the way that the chemo worked, there's times I just didn't want to deal with it. I was dealing enough with it getting stuck and getting chemo and radiation and spinal taps and bone marrows and all that stuff. I did really didn't need the stress of dealing with the other stuff with the kids. Mm-hmm. And so it was times that I would make up excuses like, I don't feel well, I don't want to go, just because I didn't like going to school. Mm-hmm. But I also... Um, had had documented radiation to my brain. Well, I started having learning disabilities because of that. Mm -hmm. And math was very, very difficult, and things were very difficult for me in school because of those types of things. Well, we started documenting all that stuff with psychologists and tests and this, that, and the other, and I got tested all the time, you know, having issues and not being able to do things. Mm -hmm. And so it was really frustrating not to be able to function like everybody else and your parents try to convince you you're normal just like everybody else, but the kids themselves aren't treating you that way. Right. So therefore, you know, it's kind of a, it's a misnomer that you're normal. Mm-hmm. You're not normal. You mm-hmm. know you're not normal. You're not being treated normal. So therefore, you, you appreciate what your parents are trying to do. On the other hand, it's kind of debilitating to you because you can't be your own individual. Mm-hmm. Everybody's That's- trying to make you normal like everybody else, but you're not that way. So. Right. That's kind of some of the things that I do remember. Mm -hmm. That totally makes a lot of sense, and I really wanted you to share that because I know that there's times when younger people or young adults listen to the show, and I want them to be able to connect with and relate to what you're expressing as having gone through this um, at a young age and the difference in 
some of those emotions and some of the things that you have to deal with. And of course, everybody's circumstance is different where they're at, where they live, who they have around them. And hopefully as time has gone by, it's gotten a little bit better as far as support systems and networks and those types of things. Did you feel as a child then that you really didn't have any control over your life? Well, yeah, because see, I was diagnosed at two with most of my leukemia. So I really didn't know what was going on. And that evidently uh, was the worst times uh, because I had blue-coated evidently, according to my folks and, and the people that, that I know. Um, I had a six-month um, life expectancy. <laughs> uh, so there were a lot of things, and you're talking about West Virginia, and you're talking about 1974 and medical technology at the time. Mm -hmm. And leukemia wasn't really well known then. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's not like um, my folks could have gone to St. Jude's. Or they, I mean, they could have, but driving five, seven hours is not what you would be able to do. It's, it just doesn't work with jobs and schedules and all that stuff. Right. Totally makes <coughs> sense. And so, so, you know, it was really difficult for them. The other thing that I, that I didn't really have a chance to do, I thank goodness I had had a cousin who had had breast cancer. And she was my main support system, and she was also my math tutor. And had I not had my cousin talk, talk honestly with, I never would have been able to get through some of the issues I was having with family and friends. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And what I mean by that is when you are dealing with cancer and a family is dealing with cancer, it's a very different role in the communication process. Mm -hmm. I had to stay strong for my mom at times when she couldn't stay strong and she had to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So there was no way that I could really say how I really felt because then everybody would freak out and start getting worried. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you, you really don't have a chance to tell the truth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're, you're internally dealing with a bunch of stuff, but then you're mentally dealing with a bunch of stuff too. And it's just, it, it's difficult. And at that age, it's really hard because then you don't have any other outlets. Exactly. I can, I can understand what you're saying. So, I mean, were you in a state of fear? Did you think about death? during that time or since then? Have you thought, okay, I'm susceptible to having cancer again. I can die from this. I mean, what are some of the thoughts you've had regarding that? The, the only time that I ever felt that I was going to maybe die or anything of that nature was <clears throat> when I found out about my non-Hodgkin. I was really scared about that mm -hmm. because here I was, thought I was over it, and now I got it again. Mm -hmm. I, but I never got the, the benefit, and this may sound really strange, the benefit to me being irradiated when I did and the short-term memory loss that I had is that I didn't have to retain all the bad stuff because I never kept it with me. Mm. And I had a positive environment where I didn't have the wrong information in my head for me to create a negative connotation of what was going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so I didn't have that negativity to feed off of because my folks, number one, wouldn't let me do that. And number two, I was working too hard to overcome where I was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As I got older, I, I had been, when I finished my treatment at the age of 12, I had been in remission for so long, I never went and got follow-ups because I was afraid what the results were going to be. Mm. However, as I got older, I'm 38 now, uh, about four years ago, I'd had my bladder, gallbladder taken out, mm -hmm. and I didn't have any health insurance, mm. and I was living in North Carolina at the time, and it took them six hours to get my gallbladder out, mm. 
it was petrified. Mm. So I'm sure that part of that had to do with that and with uh, eating and lifestyle, and, and, and that's something that I really hope people really work on is maintaining a proper balanced diet and all of the things that we need to have because you've already been through enough as it is without harming your body even more. Right. The other the other thing that I had happen to me two and a half years ago was because of the eight and a half years, my electrical system in my heart went out and I had to have a pacemaker put in. Mm. And I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And here I was living in North Carolina on a retail salary, didn't have any health insurance, didn't know how I was going to pay the first bills. God blessed me in the fact that I had that written off. Mm-hmm. Then I had this pacemaker put in. I thought it was diet. I thought it was everything else. I had no idea that I was having heart problems. Mm-hmm. But I had had nobody volunteer or call me or help me get into a long-term survivorship program to be treated to check on on issues. Mm-hmm. The only time I had had that done was when I was at Duke, and I did it on purpose to check myself. Mm-hmm. And I went through some tests and that kind of thing. But then after I left there in 98, I didn't ever go back. Mm-hmm. And so here I am down there by myself trying to do what I need to do, and I had something else come up with this health challenge. Right. And I was scared to death. I was like, what is going on here? I can imagine. And And I think that's a really great point to bring up is that a lot of times because of the fear involved and whatever people have gone through in dealing with their cancer, once they hear that word remission or they think the tumor's gone or the chemo worked or whatever it is in their situation, they often don't look at anything other than making sure they're tested to see if they have cancer again. They don't look at all the other things that are affected by cancer, whether you went through chemo and radiation or not. It affects your organs. It affects your bloodstream. It affects a lot of things and certainly more depending on where your cancer was. So I'm glad you brought that up. So yeah, that's very talk. important for people to understand is because it's not necessarily that somebody's checking for cancer. It's the fact that all of the chemo drugs, if you have to have that, which a lot of people do, have an effect on all those internal organs. Exactly. And if you don't know how they're working, you'll never know when you could come up later and be worse off than you are now. That's one of the things that really as a, as a um, patient navigator that I try to really push on people is to become educated on the drugs that they've taken, get that information so that they can know what the long-term effects are so that they can at least get it checked and find out what's going on rather than it be like my condition. Because to be honest with you, Angela, when I, when I went to my doctor, I drove 70 miles an hour on I-85 to Gastonia, which is 30 minutes from where I was living in, in Huntersville, North Carolina. I got there and I had a 28 beat per minute heart rate. Wow. And I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And he says, you ever have, have to have emergency pacemaker. And I said, excuse me? And he said, yeah. He said, your heart's beating 28 beats per minute. Now, flashback. I didn't get scared about anything until I thought about the John Q movie that Denzel Washington was in mm-hmm. when his son had to have a heart transplant and his was beating 45. Right, right. So tell the listeners about Walking Miracles and how you came about uh, founding that organization and what it's all about. Okay. Well, I started Walking Miracles in 2006 as a way to educate patients and families and to have somebody walk them through the experience. 
so that they didn't have to go through it alone because I know that's what, what I had to do. And at the time I was in North Carolina and there weren't a lot of direct services. So I was talking to everybody that I possibly could. Can I bring walking miracles to you? Is there a way that I can be involved? Yada, yada, yada. Nobody was open to anything because there wasn't funding. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting really frustrated with the whole thing. And I was like, look, I've got to do something because I know this has got to work somehow, some way. So I started it uh, and put it online, built a website around it. And then I started getting some feedback from folks. Well, this is a really great service. I wish we could do it, but, you know, and all these things. Mm -hmm. Well, eventually it led to me um, helping in North Carolina with a Cancer Survivors Day. And so people started to learn a little bit more about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so they weren't really sure how that worked and all that kind of thing, but it led to other opportunities. Well, I had had it active kind of as a find me on the web type of thing. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really looked at it as starting it as a business because I wasn't wanting to charge people money to do what I know that should already be out there. Mm -hmm. And that may sound strange. Um, I didn't do what I did for money. I did it because I wanted to be a re resource to help people. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I started it then, it never really took off to where I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. So I ended up moving back to West Virginia after I'd had my pacemaker put in. And because of my survivorship, I started getting a lot of people asking me questions. Mm -hmm. And like, well, do you have an organization? I was like, well, yeah, it's kind of in development still. And they wanted to know what it was. Well, I ended up being part of my um, local can cancer coalition. And I was asked to be on the subcommittee for cancer survivorship and patient navigation service. And I said, well, what's the next step to walking miracles? What is the next step that I can do? And I wrote Dr. Harold Freeman, who pioneered patient navigation services in 1990 for breast cancer patients in Harlem who couldn't afford services. Mm -hmm. Thanks to his clout being the, the uh, director of surgery, not many people could say anything. Mm -hmm. And so he started serving patients. Well, I submitted a grant request saying who I was, what I was doing, what was going on, and I got it accepted. Wow, And awesome. that probably was about the best highlight I'd had since 98 when I went to Duke. And I said, well, somebody's finally listening to me. So mm -hmm. I came up. I got a $1,500 scholarship. I went to training for three days, got to see how that program worked, and I was astounded. Mm -hmm. Everything that I had wanted uh, Walking Miracles to be, they had done. Mm -hmm. And it was a very complete program. So if anybody out there is looking at what is a patient navigator to do, how do you do it right, that kind of thing, it was the most complete program I'd ever seen. Because they were working with prevention, they have, a, they have an outreach navigator. That outreach navigator goes into the community, tries to get people to come in for screening. Mm -hmm. If they get screened for screening, then what happens is the diagnostic person reads it. It either says yes or no. If it says yes, then they're passed on into the system to a financial navigator. Mm -hmm. Now, in New York, they have a lot of folks that are undocumented cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they have a lot of issues in that place that we wouldn't necessarily have here. But the thing that really um, excited me about what they were doing is that navigator does all the work so the patient doesn't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'd never seen anything like this. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, this is everything that you would want. Mm -hmm. And so once that happened and they got the financial navigator, then they had an oncology navigator that explained the chemo, explained the thing, and 
they had, you know how corporate America and medical institutions, you find this inner fighting, backbiting, my degree is better than your degree and all mm -hmm. that stuff. You wouldn't have known any of that there. Mm. They awesome. had people that were high school educated working. They had patients helping patients. It was almost like a big Patch Adams movie mm -hmm. where everybody helping everybody. Mm -hmm. But then really impressed me the most was their system was a pass-off system. Mm -hmm. So once you had an established role, say you were outreach, that's all you did. Mm -hmm. You worked in outreach, and you didn't cross over into other boundaries. And so when I was talking to Dr. Freeman, he was like, well, listen, eventually we're going to have to have a survivorship navigator. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I was all over that and jumping all over it and saying, hey, you know, I'd love to do that, yada, yada. What happened was training ended on the third day. And they were introducing people that were there. Well, I got introduced, and I found out later the only reason that I got my scholarship was because I was a two-time cancer survivor. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Everybody else had worked in a medical institution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I guess God's winking down on me again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I came back to West Virginia, and I brought the information back to Jim, who I'd been working with with the coalition. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, let's have a conference. Let's see how many people are excited about what we've got to offer, and let's try to have a conference. So mm -hmm. we did. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, five people were interested, and we had 40 people show up. Mm -hmm. Of the 47 hospitals, the governor's office showed up, and we had some really strong state support. And we were like, this might be bigger than we think it is. And I kept saying to Jim, if we provide something that the people can use, it'll be fine. Right. Right. We had our last conference November 16th of this year. Our numbers went from 40 to 85. Awesome. That's and Dr. Freeman came in and spoke, and I'd been reading some articles on this stuff, and I said, well, Atlanta had brought their oncology society, Dr. Freeman, and LAF to come and talk. Mm -hmm. Unbeknownst to me, he and LAF had been talking about using that survivorship component together. So they were working together. So when he mentioned it to me at training, I was like, oh, this is where he was going. And, this is really cool. And I want to interrupt you. LAF is Lance Armstrong Foundation, correct? Yes, exactly. Okay. Just mm -hmm. for the listeners who may not know. Oh, yeah. So before we so. wrap up the show, can you talk to the listeners and share sure. about the blog you've been doing and how just a brief how that came about and what the blog is for and how people can benefit from that? Sure. Well, the blog came about from the conference, actually. And when our numbers showed up and the Lance Armstrong Foundation was there, I said, okay, I need to figure out how do we reach our community? How do we find the survivors that have been sitting in our community for 20 years that really want to serve and help other people, maybe more in a direct role than just going to a relay or going to a, a function or whatever or giving money? And so I was talking to my person that I'd been working with, and I said, what about this blog idea? What do you think? He said, well, that might be great. So what we've done is we created a blog so that we could create a supportive community. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hoping people to do with the blog, it's uh, www.westvirginialanceArmstrongCancerSurvivors.blogspot.com. And what I was trying to get our, our survivors to do was to say what they didn't have when they went through their treatments. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So that if something ever panned out, if a, if a center panned out or something panned out, that we would have information that we could put a solid program together that would give them their needs mm-hmm. and, and be able to do that kind of thing. So that's kind of how the blog took off, and it's recently been up probably about two weeks maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on my Facebook page uh, of Walking Miracles, and it's out there on the web too, and it's also on my website. But, you know, it's just a great resource, and I think we put it on, but it's just so that people can know, because people are from all kinds of of walks of life, and if they're trying to do the same thing in their community, it can help them too. And that's what it's all about, is bringing communities together, people together, and finding, I guess it was a a weak attempt at trying to do a a survivor's Facebook, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense, because they have an important value. And they have a perspective. You have a perspective yourself, Angela, mm-hmm. that can reach somebody that I couldn't reach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And being and going through something like that, you offer a perspective that people want. You know, it's kind of like, I and mean, you may agree or disagree, but I can have a doctor that has 9,000 degrees or a nurse that's sitting in front of me, but what's the question I really want to know? Who's been through what I've been through? Exactly. Who understands? Who can really get it? And I think that's a great point to bring up. And I think that the value in that is, like you said, we all endure different things, different emotions, different types of cancer, different sorts of treatments. Um, We all have different family units that we have to deal with as far as the dynamics of it all. And sharing those stories and those experiences are often what helps others to not feel alone to feel like somebody understands, to feel like they can share some of, you know, the burden, if you will, of going through something like this. And I will say that cancer is often like death. When someone dies during the first six months or so, everybody's sad for the people that are left behind. They cook for you, they send flowers, they do all these things to help make you feel better, which is great. But then all of a sudden, you're left alone. And I think that's a great deal how cancer is. You go through it and people step up. They want to help. They pray. They come and stay by your side. They take care of your kids, whatever it is, to be there for you. And that's wonderful. And I think that's the best thing that people can do. But then all of a sudden, after you know six months or a year, depending on when your treatment stops or when you find out you're in remission, that's it. You don't hear yep. anything more about it. No one asks you about it. No one right. helps you to deal with the after effects. No one really is interested in asking you if something else has changed or come up because they're afraid of what the answer will be, and they sure. don't even know how to respond to that. I think that's also the case a lot of times in the communication with families and friends when someone's dealing with it, not just in survivorship which is a good point that you just brought up. Not everybody is communicating because they don't know what to say, so they leave that person alone, and that's not what they need either. Exactly. They need to talk about it with somebody. That's right. And, and, and so, you know, that's a great point, you know, because they need to understand that, you know, it's okay to talk about it. People want to talk about it, or, they, you know, it's not going to, you know, make Wilbur go into third third stage cancer because he was talking about it. It's, it's the fact he's got to be able to have somebody to share that information with and right. that kind of thing. And that's what I liked about when I found out about you and, and saw you on Facebook and checked out your blog. I love that people have a forum that they can communicate 
not only with other cancer survivors, but people who are going through cancer, family members, and also find out answers to some of the things that they need to know, whether it's about getting a treatment or a test or whatever. And I just commend you, Brett, for your efforts in doing this. And I really wish you the best in this endeavor. And I'm, I'm sure it'll continue to grow and be even more than what you ever could have imagined. And I know there's a lot of very grateful people for your efforts. And I thank you very, very much for being on the show today. And I hope that many others will connect with you, not only to help promote what you're doing, but to find the resources that they may need or a friend they know going through this may need or their neighbor. There's always someone around us, believe it or not, um, that is going through cancer that have dealt with it or have a family member or friend dealing with it. And we really need to step up that support for one another and not treat it as another one of those things that we shouldn't talk about we should be fearful of, uh, we should, you know, brush under the rug. It's something mm -hmm. that needs to be talked about and faced and to be dealt with truthfully and openly so that there can be a different scenario for the cancer survivors of the future or, in fact, that there would be no cancer at all. Yeah, and I think one thing I'd like to add to that, and this is something that I say to all people, and we're seeing this now in society more than we ever had before. Cancer does not see color. It does not see status. It does not see money. It doesn't see anything. You can be a guy that works down at the truck stop, or you can be an, uh, an entertainer like Michael Douglas and get it just as much as anybody else. It affects us all the same way. And the one thing that I've really battled with is a lot of times, Angela, people say they don't have funding mm -hmm. for projects and services that need to be done. But if your child was my child and you needed it, wouldn't you want it? Mm -hmm. And that's what I really hope that people will see is, is maybe, you know, we hear all these um, great stories with all these philanthropy ideas and people coming together and putting money together and trying to do some things. And that's all good and that's awesome and I'm excited about it. But, you know, we all need to put all of our resources together, not just for research, but for services, mm -hmm. and we're really lacking in that area, and I'm really hoping that if there are folks out there that want to do something like that, that more direct services can be provided because it's that, that emotional support and that other support that's being missed that I really hope uh, even just what I'm doing, you know, and I'm not looking for money and I, I don't want any of that. I just want people to have the services that they should have mm -hmm. so that it makes it easier for them because life's already tough as it is. That's right. You add that on top of it, it makes it even worse. Mm -hmm. And then you add that on top of what a family has to go through, and it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I Thank you again, Brett, for joining us today. And as I said, I wish you the best in your endeavors. And thank I'm sure so we'll catch up again to find out yep. what's next for you. Sounds great, and thank you so much for having me. And it's, it's uh, really been a blessing, and I appreciate your friendship and look forward to doing things with you in the future.